Amen. We're going to look at a scripture this morning in the third chapter of Zechariah, which is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. But before we go there, as people are already turning, I want to read a few verses from a couple of Psalms that kind of set the stage for what's going on in the book of Zechariah. There are a number of psalms that are called psalms of the exile because they were written at a time when God's people had been taken out of the land, taken out of Israel and taken out of Judah, and they had been exiled into the land of Babylon. And that's something that, although many of us, most of us here have probably read the stories and read the scriptures about that, it's still hard for us to really get a conception of what uh, an incredible disaster this was for the people of God. And so Zechariah is speaking to people who have come back from the exile. They were allowed to go back into the land in 538 from the decree of Cyrus. Um, And they went back into the land, but... After a couple of years being there, and they, they began to start on the temple, they laid the foundation of the temple back, the work came to a halt. It came to an end. They were bullied by their enemies. They were uh, intimidated by enemies. They, in every way, um, they were constrained and had to stop the work on the temple. But let's look at Psalm 79 first. Just a few verses of Psalm 79, because I want you to get a feel for what this meant to this people. This is while they're yet in exile. Psalm 79. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. And they've laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. Verse 4, we become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Turn back just a little bit to Psalm 74. I'm going to pick up in verse 7 in Psalm 74. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet There's none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Stop right there. Just want you to get some idea of the calamity that came upon the people when they were uprooted from the land that God had promised them back from Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. God had promised them a good land in which they would dwell and he would be their God and they would be his people. And then he dwelt in the tabernacle and then as they built the temple, God's presence was manifested in his temple and yet Because of their sin and their disobedience, God judged them as He promised them He would. In Deuteronomy 28, 
and he takes them out of the land, and those who come in destroy everything. They destroy the temple down to the ground and burn it and take the people out of the land. The most amazing calamity they could ever imagine has come upon them. So these prophets right in exile, these, these psalmists right in the exile, in their grief, but along comes the good news in 538 that they will be allowed to go back into the land. Roughly 50,000 Jews make that departure from Babylon and they go back into the land of promise with joy and rejoicing and hope. But now it's 18 years later as the prophet is going to write these words in Zechariah. It's 18 years later and they've been in the land, but the temple is still in ruins. The priestly service of offering up atonement on behalf of the people is in shatters because the temple is not yet built. The presence of God, as they understand it, doesn't dwell there. Where is the glory of the Lord? I wonder for us, how many of us have had dreams that we've dreamed of and began to see God move, and yet, as we got closer and closer to it, it doesn't come to fruition. Something that is right there, it looks like I can touch it, it's like a mirage that you see in the desert, and you can see it right there, and when you get there, it's not there anymore. They're hopeless and they're in despair. In the exile, the Jews felt the abject poverty of their own souls. And I wonder for us often if our salvation, sometimes we take it so lightly and it seems to mean not nearly as much as it should because we don't see our abject poverty. We still see that everything's basically all right. I don't have this and this and this that I'd really like to have, but basically I'm okay. But God gave the Jews this picture of their poverty of soul and spirit. And it's a picture that each and every one of us needs to see to really grip the reality of the salvation that God gives us. So let's look at Zechariah. We're going to look at chapter 3, but just some very brief stuff as we get into this and kind of what comes before chapter 3. That's an easy answer, chapter 1 and chapter 2. But what's in those chapters? This is a book, a prophecy. It's a book that is also called apocalyptic literature, which is a type of literature. Anyone who's ever read Revelation and ended up with your head spinning around saying, what in the world is that? You know what apocalyptic literature is. Ezekiel. Um, and and. Many, many examples in Scripture of apocalyptic literature, which is, which is literature that is speaking to a people in a certain time, but also speaking to a far-off people, but using usually dreams and visions and symbols and types. And so that's what the book of, Je uh, of Zechariah is. That's what this prophecy is. And so in the first two chapters of Zechariah, there are three visions that he gives, and we're going to look at the fourth vision in detail in chapter 3. But each of these centers around the fact that the people are there. It is now 520 B.C. They've been in the land for 18 years, and the temple is still in ruins. The presence of God is not among them. There's a crisis. And so he writes to assure them that it is time to rise up and build. It is time to see the Lord's presence again among them. And so he, he writes and he sees these visions that God gives him which point to that reality. The first vision in chapter 1, the vision of the horsemen. I'm just going to go through these very briefly. Look at verse 11. As these horsemen go out to all the earth, it says, And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, 
We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. That sounds like good news, but look at verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you've been angry these 70 years? He's saying all the nations are at rest. They've not been judged for what they've done to us. Look at verse 16. And this is the Lord speaking. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. That's good news. I will establish my presence again, God is saying, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. This is the news they need to hear, that God will indeed manifest his presence among them again. Then the next little vision, starting in verse 18, the vision of the horns and the craftsmen. The horns represent the nations that have destroyed Jerusalem. The craftsmen are those who will subdue them. At the last part of that verse in, in verse, let's see, verse 21, he says, And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come, the craftsmen he's talking about, to terrify them and cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. In other words, those who have come against my people, I'm about to come against. Then in chapter 2 is the third vision that Zechariah sees. And this is a vision of a man with a measuring line. It's a young man. We don't know anything about who he is, but pick it up in verse 4. And he said to him, run. Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So as they're reestablishing themselves and the man comes with the measuring line to see what the land will be like, he says, Put away your measuring line. What I'm about to do, what God is going to do, what I'm going to establish in the place of my promise is so great, you don't have enough measuring line to measure it. It says it'll be like a village without walls because there will be so many in it. And God says, I will be a wall of fire around it. He says, I will be the glory in the midst of it. God is promising Complete restoration to his people beyond what they can imagine. Further down in verse 8, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his, glorious, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. The phrase there can actually mean the gateway of his eye, or the eyelid. And if I was just to go up to Pastor Mason, ask him to take up his glasses for just a second, and just poke him in the eye, just for a second. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but any one of us, if someone touches you on the eye, what happens? You immediately, you'll move your head, you jerk your head, because that's the most sensitive place that there is. If someone touches you there, you're sensitive there. So God says, anyone who gets near you to mess with you, I'm sensitive to that. Don't mess with my people. They're the apple of my eye. And he promises in these verses in chapter 2 that many, the nations will come. The promise of Abraham will come to pass that the people of the nations will gather together. This thing is better than just one ethnicity. This is bigger than just the Jews. This is God's people gathered from every race and tribe and tongue. That's the promise he gives in the vision in chapter 2. So that brings us to the chapter we're going to look at in a little more detail. Zechariah chapter 3. The title I have for today is simply this, A Great Salvation. 
a great salvation. This is broken up really into two parts. Verses 1 through 7 give us a picture of salvation. And then verses 8 through 10 show us the person of salvation. So we're going to look at those two things briefly this morning. So let's start reading at verse verse 1. Scripture says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Literally, the word there, filthy, soim is the Hebrew word. In Isaiah, a couple times it's used for excrement or dung or whatever other word you want to describe that thing. It's also used in another part in Isaiah for vomit. So here we have a picture of God's high priest, Joshua the high priest. Now what's very different about this vision from the other visions that we've seen so far, and many of them that are to come in Zechariah, is the others are of people or horsemen or a man with a measuring line, people that are nondescript. It describes a person, but no one knows who that person is. When he begins to talk about Joshua the high priest, the people know exactly who he is. He lives in the city right there with the rest of the folks that Zechariah is prophesying to. So he is a known person. They may have been walking down to pay less sandals just the other day. And they ran into Zechariah, they ran into Joshua. Or perhaps they were at Jerusalem Flavors getting some water ice. Who knows? But they ran into this dude. They, they see him. They see him about his business. So this is different. This is not normal in apocalyptic literature. You see it sometimes, but he's calling out an actual person that people touch and see and feel and know. So he begins to talk about Joshua, who has the place of the high priesthood. He is the high priest. And he's standing in the nastiest garments you can ever imagine. Filled with dung and vomit and mess. He must be stinking from a mile away. And the accuser is among them. When it says... And Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. Satan is the accuser. Hasatan is actually the Hebrew, which means the, the one who accuses. So the one who accuses is there. He's accusing the high priest who would dare to come into the presence of God in nasty, stinking, filthy garments. And it seems like if I read my Bible, he might have a pretty good case. To accuse him. The high priest was to come into the most holy place, into the presence of God, one time a year. Into the holy of holies he went. And if you look at it, Leviticus 16, it lays out exactly what he has to do to get ready to go into the presence of God. He's warned that if you don't fulfill each one of these steps, every ritual cleansing, putting on the priestly garments that are clean, if, if, if you miss any one of these steps and dare to go into the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of hosts, if you go into His presence the wrong way, you will be destroyed. You'll be killed in a second, in a moment, because you've gone in the wrong way. And so it seems like the accuser has a point. He's accusing him of going in to the holy place, into the presence of God in the wrong way. But look 
at God's strong rebuke. Verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, O accuser. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Satan seems to have a case, but the Lord has another case. The Lord says, don't you understand? Haven't you read the whole thing? I have chosen him from before the foundation of the world. I chose him in Abraham. I chose him in David. I chose Joshua through the Aaronic priesthood. I have chosen him, and therefore you have no grounds to make an accusation against him. The only one who has grounds to make an accusation against God's anointed is God himself. No one else has a right. Yes, he's come before him filthy. Isaiah 64, 6, I like the way the ESV puts it. We've all become like one who's unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The message says we're all sin infected and sin contaminated. Our best efforts are grease stained rags. I don't know if anyone's ever gone to the mechanic and you see a rag that's just stained with grease. That ain't coming out. That grease is going to stay in there. There's no way you're going to get that out. And here he is in these garments and yet God says, this is the one I promised. This is the one that I have chosen a couple weeks ago as we're going beginning to go through ephesians we talked about just the fact that god has chosen us don't get it twisted he didn't choose you because you came looking good or smelling nice he chose you out of his own sovereign love he he chose you because he has decided to place his affection on you, not because of anything good that he foresaw in your life, but simply because he is God. And he decides to pursue you and to love you and to place his affection upon you. He says in verse 3, Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? See, as he's talking about Joshua, he is reminding the accuser that Joshua, along with the rest of the people, they were all in captivity, deserved to be in captivity, never deserved to come out of captivity. But God says, I stuck my hand in the fire and I plucked them out to save them because they belong to me. I want you to get this, that God's love for us stands up against every accusation. Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? There's no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. So though he comes into the presence of God in a way that we'd say, that's not going to work, God says, I've chosen him. He's mine. So look at this next picture in the next two verses. Verses 4 and 5. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, now Zechariah gets excited seeing this. And he says, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Wow. What a picture of salvation we see right here. He's standing in filthy garments in the presence of God, and he says to the angel, the angel says to those standing before him, take off, take off the filthy garments. And he says, behold, 
I've taken your iniquity away from you. The word there, iniquity, means perversity, depravity, any activity that's crooked or wrong. But it not only speaks to the activity itself, when he says, take the iniquity, I've taken your iniquity away from you, not only is it that sinful activity, but it is the guilt of that, and it is the punishment that is incurred for that. So when he says, take the iniquity away, in other words, don't charge any of those things to his account anymore. Take everything off. Take it all away. Not only what he's done, not only those garments, but the guilt of what he's done, the punishment that he deserves for what he's done, all of that, take it away. The Bible says in another place he's removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. They never meet. He says, your sin is behind me. I see it no more. He forgives. What a beautiful picture. Turn to Isaiah 64. In Isaiah 64... The Lord gives us a picture 200 years before Zechariah prophesied. Isaiah prophesied these words. Verse 10. may have the wrong verse that I'm looking at here. The verse I'm looking for. Uh, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I want you to look at that. He's clothed me with the garments of salvation, covered me with the robe of righteousness. A little while ago, we were singing the song, Lord, you are the Holy One. The light of your presence leaves sinners undone, but clothed in the righteousness of your Son, in love you bid us to come. Be exalted, Lord. God clothes us not in our own righteousness, but in His. Philippians chapter 3, Paul puts it in these words, starting at verse 8. He says, for, for His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. A few of us are studying in one of the cipher groups. We're looking at the story in Luke chapter 15, commonly called the prodigal son. And we're learning a lot about the nature of God's love for us as we read through and study through Tim Keller's book on that called The Prodigal God. One of the things we see as the prodigal is in the pig pen and the Bible says he comes to his senses and he begins to go, he develops his plan and begins to go back to the father. It says the father runs out to him and says, among other things, to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And Keller talks about the fact that the best robe in the house would have, would have to have been the father's robe. So this prodigal who has wasted his inheritance, has sought after every vile thing that he's learned and been trained not to go after, and he's spent it all that way. When he begins to come back and the father runs to him, he says, 
put my robe on him. I want everyone to know there's no, there's no accusation that will stand up against him. He's wearing the robe of the Father himself. Do you get that? The Father who obviously in the parable is, is the one who represents God himself says, clothe him in my robe. Clothe him in my righteousness. What he's done is past. I accept him back fully. Who can bring a charge against him? A beautiful picture of God justifying us and not allowing any charge to come against his people. So he is now clothed in beautiful garments. He's clothed in a way that no one can bring an accusation. And then let's look at verse 6 in Zechariah 3. The scripture says, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you'll walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. This again is a beautiful promise to the people hearing this prophecy for the first time because he says, the promise is that you'll rule in my house, you'll have charge of my courts. In other words, when the temple is rebuilt, it will be rebuilt. And we know by history it was, it was completed five years after this prophetic word was given, so they got to work on it. But this tells them it will be built, and you will rule in my house and take charge of my courts. In other words, the, the, the sacrifices and the ceremonies that were prescribed in the law of Moses will begin all over again. And we will make atonement for God's people through those sacrifices. It's good news to those who hear it. And yet there's an element to this promise that is still conditional. He says, if you walk in my ways, we can say, if you walk in my ways and if you keep my charge, then these things will happen. These promises will unfold. It's a reminder that what got them in the exile in the first place was their disobedience. So he's, he's charging them again to be obedient to everything that, that God would say in order that they might fulfill his purpose through his people. That's a good promise, but it's a promise that for any one of us, if we said, if God promised us now, I'll keep you as long as, as long as you don't veer in any way, shape, or form from my law, there's not one of us that would ever make it. Amen? We'll all fall short. No matter how much he's done for us in the past, we'll fall short. But the beauty of this, as he gives us this picture of salvation, is that he also gives us a promise in the person of salvation, starting in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. They are men who are assigned. The men he's talking about are the men from verse 4, those who took away the filthy garments of Joshua. He said, you and those men stand as a sign. A sign is always something that points away from itself, right? I don't know about anybody else, but I, when I travel, when we're driving down 95, we have family in Florida. So we may be driving for 10 hours, 15 hours, and I don't like to stop. I believe in holding it. And we'll eat when we get there. But sometimes, hold it as much as you want. Or eat when we get there as much as you want. 
eventually you're going to get hungry. Amen? And you're going to need to go somewhere else as well. But I see a sign for Burger King. And I'm hungry. I've been on the road for eight hours, for ten hours. And all of a sudden, that, that sign begins to come alive and stir my soul. And, and the reality of the, the juiciosity of the Whopper, not the Whopper Junior. I'm talking about the Whopper right now. And the crispiness of the fries begins the salivation process in my life. But it's not because I'm fixated on the sign itself. The sign is just a piece of metal with some words and some, some paint on it. But when I see that sign, it points to something else. It points to something real. It points to something I know. It points to something I've had before. It points to something that I desire deeply. And so he says, these men are a sign. These men who are in the temple doing the work of the temple, the priesthood of the Old Testament, they're a sign. They're pointing to something greater than themselves. By themselves, they can't do anything. I wouldn't want to eat that sign out on 95. It'd be hard. Now, it'd have a lot of minerals in it, a lot of iron perhaps. But it wouldn't be very chewy. It has no appeal to eat the sign. But, but the substance behind that sign is the thing that, that I, I look for that's going to give me life. He says, they're a sign. You're a sign, Joshua, pointing somewhere else. He says, pointing to what? Pointing to my servant, the branch. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah begins to talk about the servant, the suffering servant that we see finally fully manifested in Isaiah 53. He says, it's my servant, but my servant, the other analogy he uses there is the branch. Isaiah 11 and verse 1 says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jeremiah picks up on the language from, from Isaiah and in Jeremiah 33 verses 15 and 16 uses these words. He says, in those days and at that time, I will cause my righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. He says, I'm pointing somewhere else. It's... Ultimately, as much as you can't wait for the, the temple to be reconstructed, there's something greater than the, the stones that will be laid upon each other. There's something greater than the cedar and the gold which will overlay it. There's something greater, and it's my servant. It's a person. It's not just a place. It's my servant called the branch. Look at this beautiful picture. The last two verses here, 9 and 10. He says, For behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of the land, of this land, in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The last part of that verse, most of us don't have vines. Very few of us have fig trees. I actually have some vines in my backyard. They're called poison ivy. 
And if you wonder why I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt on a hot summer day, it's because I'm not a very bright man at times. And I've got a nasty case of poison ivy. But the beautiful thing when he says about every man, every man being under to invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree, it ain't poison ivy, y'all. That is language that is commonly used in Scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 4, it says, In Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan, which was the northernmost part of Solomon's kingdom, to Beersheba, which was the southernmost part of the kingdom. It says, And every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. It talks about the reign of peace that came through the great king of the Old Testament, King Solomon. But as he begins to talk about in three types, he talks about him as the servant, as the branch, and in verse 9, he also talks about him as the stone that has been set before Joshua. Again, that's a messianic, messianic term. He says, through this man, this one that I'm prophesying of, everyone will experience peace like they've never known it before. Perfect shalom, perfect peace through the Prince of Peace. Verse 9, as it talks about speaking forward, looking at Jesus, who will be the stone. Going back to Psalm 118, it says, The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Let's turn, I want to turn to one more scripture today. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Just before I get there real quickly, again in verse 9 he says, I'll remove the iniquity of the land in one day. The word he uses there for remove is a word that has the idea of Touching and removing at the same time. Removal through touch. In Isaiah 6-7, when Isaiah has the, the vision of the Lord and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He sees uh, the worship of, of the Lord going on in the temple of the Lord in his vision. When the seraphim come and cleanse Joshua uh, or uh, cleanse Isaiah in those verses in verse 7 of Isaiah 6, it says, Then he touched your lips. He touches his lips with a hot coal from the fire. And it says, And your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. With the touch that comes in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 9, you don't have to turn there. But the woman says, If I could just touch the hem of his garment then I'll be healed. And what God is saying is that there is a removal of iniquity in our lives, the, the presence of sin, the power of sin, and ultimate, ultimately the presence of sin, but the, the, the penalty of sin. All of these things are removed from us with a touch. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that I don't have to go try to find God and to touch Him somewhere. The, the reality is, He has touched me. That old song says, He touched me. He touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. To know that Jesus Christ, the living God, has touched me and removed my iniquity as far away from me as the east is from the west. He's touched me. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone, that's Jesus. That's the one Zechariah is talking about. That's the branch. That's the servant. That's the stone. 
you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living, living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Zechariah gives us this beautiful picture of salvation, taking away the filthy garment and putting on the robe of righteousness that belongs to Christ and Christ alone, the one who lived the perfect life, and yet he gives it to us to wear. God makes crazy trades. I give him my mess, he gives me his righteousness. It's, it's like the Miami Heat making a trade. LeBron, Dwayne, and Bosch for Pastor Larry. I'm not bragging right now. But in my junior year in high school, I was on an excellent basketball team. We won our sectional tournament, almost went to states, and I scored an average of one point per game. I scored 13 points. I only got into 13 games. I was the scrub at the end. We're ahead by 30. Can we put them in? Not until we get ahead by 35. But Miami Heat trades for me. That would be idiotic. It would make no sense. But the scripture says he gave us beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for what? For the spirit of heaviness. God has given us what we could never imagine or think of, or deserve in any way, shape, or form. And He's given it to us all, freely, in Jesus Christ. As, as I close, I hope and pray, I know this was a lot of stuff to go through, but God's people didn't get it when things were going well. They didn't get it often in times of prosperity. They began to get it in exile. They began to get it when every wheel came off the bus. They began to get it when they saw death and destruction all around them and they saw the temple of God burnt down in ruins. And generations passed and they continued to see that and they got it. My prayer for us as a people is that we will get it now. I pray that we won't have to go through that kind of destruction in our own lives, but look at what, what's going on in your life. Is God trying to get your attention? What is He doing to get your attention? We waste our life on so many things that have so little value. We pour our time, our effort, our energy into things that 
come to nothing. And yet the God of the universe calls us and loves us and clothes us with His righteousness and says, I want to make of you something that matters in this world and matters for eternity. We have an offer from God. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would come to understand better this picture of salvation that you have so skillfully drawn for us in Zechariah. But we pray even more that we would embrace the person of salvation that you've showed us through your prophets, the one who walked on this earth for 33 years and never sinned, the one who was bruised for our iniquity, the one who's, who was chastised and beaten and crucified mercilessly, the one who hung on a tree be, between earth and heaven and cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who knew eternal communion with the Father and was separated from him in time as he identified with the filth and the stain and the stench of our sin. Lord, it's He that we laud today. It's He that we praise today. It's He that we glorify today. Because He was perfect, the grave couldn't keep Him. And He rose up on the third day. And now, it is not Satan at the right hand of God, but it is Jesus at the right hand of God. Not accusing, but defending. Jesus at the right hand of God saying that they are mine, Father. They belong to me, Father. And the Father is pleased. Lord, help us. Help us to seek your face earnestly that we might live in such a way that the name of that great God whom we serve is glorified in all that we do. Lord, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Lord, there's anyone that doesn't know you among us here today. We pray that you would draw them and do the work that only you can do. We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.